global tax reform is underway, but it's not a seamless process. In fact, creating the new framework comes with constant contractions, making it even more exciting to watch as it unfolds. On today's episode of The Fiona Show Transfer Pricing, we're examining the U.S.'s Pillar 1 proposals to tax only the, quote, top 100 and the potential issues that could arise from its implementation. Joining us today is Academia Rockstar and the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing guest veteran, Dr. Lorraine Eden, Professor Emerita of Management and Research Professor of Law at Texas A&M University. She's here to discuss her two-part article, Taxing the Top 100. But before we get to that, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Note to tax authorities everywhere, intercompany royalty payments and service transactions are often used for legitimate intercompany business, not profit shifting. But for the Polish tax authorities, that sentiment may take some convincing. Years after the initial BEPS initiative, Poland continues to take aggressive measures against tax avoidance. The latest, a new tax bill dubbed the Polish deal, includes a corporate minimum income tax as a special anti-avoidance measure. The corporate minimum tax would be imposed on taxpayers in a loss position from reasons other than capital gains and when economic activity is equal to less than 1% of its tax revenue. Certain taxpayers would be exempt, startups, financial institutions, taxpayers whose revenue decreased at least 30% from the year prior, and taxpayers with simple corporate structures. Tax authorities estimate a 450 million euros return. That's at least 532 million U.S. dollars from the deal. And if you've been reading the tax news lately, you may have noticed that the rest of the world has been busy negotiating a global minimum tax, which for now stands at, quote, at least 15 percent, unquote. How much is Poland's? It equals 10 percent of a base derived from a sum of numbers computed by algorithms and formulas. The Polish deal would repeal Poland's 2018 anti-avoidance provisions, which limited the deductibility of intercompany service payment and royalties and drove an increase in the number of advanced pricing agreements in the country. If the bill passes, it will make new APAs less advantageous for companies. Of course, the Polish deal, which doesn't sound like much of a deal at all, still needs to make it through Parliament. If it passes, you can expect taxpayers to fall in line at the start of 2022. One of the potential deal breakers for the United States in signing on for the OECD's global tax reform has long been the question of digital services taxes. These unilateral taxes are often imposed on revenue, not profits, for digital services like online advertising, and they are issued in varying amounts at the discretion of each individual country, 3% by Belgium, 5% by Czech, 7.5% by Hungary, and so on. The question the U.S. has been asking is... If we sign, will these taxes go away? Okay, that's the polite version of the negotiations. According to the OECD in July, the answer was a simple yes. In fact, the organization said the plan includes, quote, the removal of all digital services taxes and other relevant similar measures on all companies. But now some experts are thinking these unilateral levies may be here to stay. Pillar 1 reallocates amount A, residual profits, based on where revenue is earned, not a company's physical presence, but only a small number of companies, 79 at last count, will be affected. Some countries may feel like companies should pay some kind of digital services tax, and some experts think tax authorities will reinstate those levies under another name. Looks like advanced pricing agreements may no longer be an option for factories in Mexico known as maquiadoras. Mexico's Office of the Treasury and Public Credit just proposed a bill for these companies, which are factories located on the Mexican side of the U.S.-Mexico border, to determine taxable income by means of a safe harbor as opposed to advanced pricing agreements. The problem for the factories is the safe harbor strategy stands to increase their taxes by at least 30%. 
Currently, companies operating under Mexico's Maquiadora regime can opt for advanced pricing agreements or safe harbor rules. Under safe harbor rules, the company's tax base is determined by calculating 6.9% of the total revenue of the assets or 6.5% of operating costs, whichever is greater, naturally. In 2020, 456 Maquiadoras opted for APAs, while more than 600 opted for safe harbors. Still, having the choice is a huge benefit as the method used can drastically affect a company's taxable income. The safe harbor advantage, of course, is simplicity. The rules and calculations are straightforward. However, for some companies, that comes at a price. The bill will be in the negotiation stage until October 31st, but don't hold your breath. It's expected to fly through without issue. The government claims the move away from APAs isn't to raise more tax revenue it's to improve efficiency. Given that so much time and so many resources go into APA revisions, the government thinks they're not the solution they were supposed to be. Of course, we can't help but notice the move to safe harbor rules will free up tax authorities to focus on audits. But then maybe that's just a coincidence. Wink, wink. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Welcome back, everyone. We're here right now with Fiona Show Transfer Pricing guest veteran, Dr. Lorraine Eden, Professor Emerita of Management and Research Professor of Law at Texas A&M University. She's here to discuss her two-part article, Taxing the Top 100, based on the U.S.'s new Pillar 1 proposals. Dr. Eden, thank you so much for being with us. Matt, thank you very much. It's always good to be back on the Fiona Show. The last time you were on the show was January 2021, which was a very bleak time for COVID-19. What did you take away from that time in quarantine that you spent? Wow, 2021 January. That seems like an eon ago, doesn't it? I know. I'm sure it does for you too, Matt. So much has happened uh, over that past uh, few months. My my takeaway is that, one, it's nice not to travel so much anymore. I used to travel quite a lot and for work, and being able to work from home, doing things like over Zoom and stuff has really made me come to appreciate the ability to sort of stay in one place and regroup. The big change, of course, that's uh, happened now that my husband and I have been vaccinated is being able to start seeing family and friends again. I thought we were over the hump, but now with the new Delta variant that's out, of course, we're all back wearing masks again and, and worried about, about the future. Yeah. But yes, it was a very bleak time. I thought we were out of it, and it looks like we may have another wave ahead of us, which is potential for another bleak time. How have you seen transfer pricing evolve, would you say, throughout your career? You've been in this game. Uh, I won't date you. Uh, I, I won't date you. But I, I know just even in the last, I'd say, even five to seven years, it's completely evolved, even in my brief time in this space. Well, I, I frankly don't mind being dated. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote my dissertation, published my dissertation in 1976. So think about that. That's what, 40 years ago, close to 40 years ago. Yeah. My first publication yeah. was, I think, in 78 on this. At that point in time, 
I think almost nobody knew what the word was, and there was no profession, no transfer pricing profession. The very first few sort of cases we saw didn't really happen until the 1980s. Think about the DuPont case, for example. And, and there were people like Charles Berry and, and Tom Horst uh, working back then. This field exploded, frankly, uh, after the U.S. regulations changed in 94 and the OECD guidelines came down in 1995. It exploded again, of course, after the financial crisis, I think, in 2008-2009. The profession is now a worldwide profession. Almost every country has regulations. The Multiple firms are involved in providing transfer pricing advice. I used to say when I taught my first transfer pricing class, which was in January 2007, so you know what's that, 14 years ago now? At that point in time, my first student got an internship with Walmart. Walmart had two transfer pricing people, and for the summer they took one of my students as an intern to Arkansas. That is completely different now. Industry transfer pricing specialists, most multinationals now have in-house transfer pricing professionals. That was not the case even 15 years ago. The field has simply exploded in terms of the number of people in it, the number of journals, the number of articles. Keeping up these days is a whole lot harder than it was when I started. (laughs) I know we've had you on the show to talk a couple of times about Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. We're going to do plenty of that today. Uh, Is there something else that's the biggest tax issue on your radar at the moment? That seems like a big one. It's hard to, when my mom starts bringing up transfer pricing because of the global minimum tax, that's, I I have a hard time picking another one for this question, but do you have another? That's fascinating that your mom, I mean, think about what we just said. You just said your mom talks about transfer pricing. Yeah. Uh, Mine does too, by the way, and she's 95. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yes, I actually do have, and, and I'll be fairly explicit about why I think there is another big issue on the table here. I've spent much of the time um, since the um, OECD came down with Pillar um, Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 first proposals, worrying about Pillar 1 in particular amount A because I think it's such a bad policy design. Yeah. But, you know, if you think about why Amount A was put in place, it was put in place because automated digital service multinationals were selling into market jurisdictions and didn't have permanent establishments there. And so the market jurisdictions weren't able to tax them. So really what you had was large firms, large digital multinationals, the, you know, the Facebooks and the, uh, the apples of the world, who were creating a lot of revenues either um, directly by selling stuff uh, such as advertising space and and that none of that corporate income tax base was going into the into the so-called market jurisdictions so pillar one amount a was designed to fix that well we've moved progressively further and further away from the original problem that started us off on uh, the action item one, taxing the digital economy. Frankly, where we are today has nothing to do with taxing the digital economy as far as I can see, <laughs> or very little. Nothing is, is too, too strong, but has little to do with the problem that we started, which was action item one, which is taxing the digital economy. So my research over really, frankly, almost two years now has been to argue that Pillar 1 Amount A is a bad policy proposal for a variety of reasons, and it doesn't fix the problem. And I think the new proposals the U.S. has now has moved even further away from the original problem that we had. So where am I? What's on my radar screen now? My radar screen now is we really need to talk about fixing the problem of taxing digital transactions and digital multinationals. And so I think I'm going to spend less time going ahead on focusing on amount A and more time saying, let's talk more about digital taxes. Let's talk about the problem of digital permanent establishments. Let's talk about how we really can apply transfer pricing to digital transactions. 
And getting right into it, this April, the Biden administration proposed that the OECD's Pillar 1 should only apply to the world's 100 largest, most profitable companies, that's the top 100, instead of just targeting automated digital services in consumer-facing businesses and industries. It dramatically reduces the number of in-scope multinationals from 2,300 to 100. Uh, Dr. Eden, what is the aim of this recently altered initiative? Why would the U.S. propose this change? Well, I think the reason is when the Biden administration came in, they were very worried about U.S. multinationals not paying enough corporate income tax, that profits were being shifted outside of the United States abroad. And the solution they saw to it was not go back to worldwide taxation. The U.S. is basically on a territorial tax system where foreign source income earned by U.S. multinationals abroad is basically not taxed other than through the guilty provisions. So the, when the Biden administration came in, they wanted to increase corporate income taxation on U.S. multinationals as a way to finance the infrastructure package. You know, we have to have this huge amount of spending because of COVID and for a variety of other reasons getting more taxes from multinationals on their income earned abroad was perceived as a way to do that. So in other words, short form is Janet Yellen was very interested in getting closure on pillar two. Involves closing some loopholes, but basically creating a global minimum tax that's along the lines of the U.S. guilty proposal. And in order to get pillar two, which the U.S. wanted, in other words, an, an effective, everybody else is going to do guilty too. We'll all be guilty. <laughs> uh, that, um, so in, in getting everyone else to be guilty too, then the way to do that was to compromise on pillar one. The European Union very much wants pillar one for a variety of reasons. So it was a compromise. I don't think, frankly, the U.S. administration is strong, strongly tied to pillar one. The Republican senior members of Congress and the Senate are clearly against Pillar 1. They don't want to see U.S. multinationals being taxed more highly. But I think Pillar 1 was the carrot that Yellen offered to the European Union in order to get Pillar 2, a global minimum tax. And we've seen much more discussion of that of late. In the Pillar 1 blueprint, the financial insurance and mining industries are excluded. Your article argues for the inclusion of these three industries and compares their presence to manufacturing, uh, wholesale, retail, automated digital services, and others. Uh, based on your research, why would the elimination of any one of these industries put strain uh, on the remaining industries in the scope and the remaining multinationals? Well, maybe it's interesting to think about it just conceptually, Matt, and then I think that the answer becomes very clear. Pillar one is designed to take a group of multinationals around the world, define it as you like, based on their sales, based on their profits, based on their assets. You know, you basically set the criteria for what multinationals, and these are designed to be in scope. And then you take a formula and use that formula to move the tax base, in other words, taxable profits, among the jurisdictions. So, for example, I could just say, as the original proposal was way back at the beginning, remember what started this off was action item one, taxing the digital economy. And the original proposal was, okay, if we want to tax digital multinationals, why don't we start with those? They were called automated digital services firms. So the original proposal is the only in scope were ADS firms. And then all the countries in the world that would were, were somehow uh, going to be allocated or lose some portion of the tax base of automated digital services firms. So the first question then was scope, who's in, right? And who's out? So the original proposal was only ADS be in and everybody else was out. Now, what happened, and that was, I think, very much a European proposal because it was designed specifically to go after the large American multinationals in automated digital services in the digital economy, what I've called the born digital multinationals, those that started out being digital from the beginning, and they were the only ones that were to be in scope. And there was a perception very much that 
other countries thought they could get a bit of the tax pie of these American multinationals through setting up Pillar 1 Amount A to go after ADS. As expected, the United States turned around and said, you can't just tax my multinationals, you got to expand the scope, you got to bring others in. So then you get horse trading. And the decision finally was to go after consumer-facing businesses. The problem is consumer-facing businesses, in other words, what do we think was B2C, business to consumer, or the tail end where you're actually selling to consumers. Problem is, that's a really fuzzy, messy definition. And trying to segment and decide who was in and who was out, I think everybody agreed that there would be huge incentives for firms to be out and so there'd be a lot of messiness going on here. So I think in order to cut through this, what happened is the Biden administration said, look, you can't just tax ADS. Adding consumer-facing businesses is far too complex. Let's go the following. Let's just tax the biggest ones, the biggest and the most profitable. And like the original decision was 100. It's a nice round number. Pick it out of the air. And let's go after the top 100. And the argument was that this would be easier. So in effect, we went from a really narrow scope of ADS to a broader scope of, in, of including consumer-facing businesses. But the perception was this was a really messy one. And then the definition was changed. Let's just go to 100. Well, in the second phase, the phase which was ADS plus consumer-facing businesses, two groups got out. They negotiated well and they got out. Finance and insurance got out and all the extractive industries, the natural resource industries, what the Bureau of Economic Analysis in the US calls mining. So finance and insurance and mining got out in the second phase. And having got out, clearly they wanted to stay out. So in the top 100, when I wrote my article on the, uh, taxing the top 100, I did the calculations with everybody in, but I knew finance insurance, which includes banking, of course, and, and the natural resource industries were going to say, we were out before, we want to stay out now. And it looks like they're going to get it. So that means I'm now changing the scope again and shrinking it back to where I started. And what happens is anybody who's in has to really bear the burden of this. And everybody who's out escapes what I've called the pillar one fishing net. So the size of the net keeps changing. Everybody, all the firms want out, but the tax authorities want the net as wide as possible. And so that's part of the conundrum. And in part two of your article, you discuss the potential roadblocks to taxing the top 100. What are those roadblocks? How can they be resolved? Well, the first roadblock, I think, is in, implicit in kind of what I just said, which is that no multinational, I think, really wants to be <laughs> included in pillar one amount uh, A. It's in effect, I think, going to be an extra tax on those firms. They're simply going to end up having to pay greater tax. And so the first problem is that the multinationals themselves are going to lobby hard to get out. Some will get out in the beginning, as I said here, they're just able to negotiate out. For example, what I've read in the papers is that finance and insurance are out simply because the UK insisted on it. London's a financial hub. Most of the revenue comes from finance and insurance multinationals that are headquartered in London. They want it out. So getting out at the beginning is one of the first things. But if you didn't get out and you actually are caught in that net of the top 100, you yourself can do things to influence that. Engage in what I call pillar one tax games to be changed so that you can be out. So, for example, let me just give you a simple one. The list of who's in and who's out is going to be determined based on size, based on revenue and profitability. Well, one year is different from another. Just to give you a very simple example, look at Zoom. If you go back to the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Zoom was a little tiny multinational. It's huge now and far more profitable. Many firms are far larger and more profitable now. Think of, uh, think of Amazon right. and uh, Amazon's uh, online services, AWS services. Many of these firms are far larger and more profitable this year than they were last year. 
on the other hand, many other firms have come close to bankruptcy. So if the definition is size and profitability, clearly it's going to change every year. I did a simple calculation by looking at the Forbes 100 and the Forbes 200 firms just to see who was in and out from one year and the next in the top 100 and the top 200. There was a 50% flip between who was in one year and who was in two years later. Yeah. So what's going to happen here is firms are going to bounce in and out of being inside the pillar one net and outside the pillar one net. And does that matter? Absolutely. And I'll explain to you why for, for two reasons of why it matters. Reason number one, suppose I am one of the market jurisdictions that is receiving tax base and I'm getting tax base from, I don't know, 20 multinationals that we're in this year. Two years later, these multinationals are not in the top 100. They're out. Well, I've been getting a nice piece of free tax base for those multinationals, and now they're out. Do you think I'm going to let that go? Do you think a tax jurisdiction is just going to lose that base that they got for the last couple of years? No. no. I think they're going to try to, any way possible, keep it. They'll audit long, even higher, right. um, more intensively, go after that a multinational in other ways. So that's the sort of first reason here. The second reason I think why this is a, a problem is think about if you're a tax jurisdiction and from a government perspective here too also, and you've got some multi, all foreign multinationals in your jurisdiction. Some of them are really highly profitable and are supposed to lose tax base. You're supposed to be giving up tax base. Others of those multinationals are underpaying tax and so you're supposed to get more from them. What is the tax authority going to do? Well, I think the tax authority is going to say, you, those of you that aren't paying enough, pay me more. Right. And those of you that are paying me too much, too bad. You need to just keep on paying me what you paid before. And so again, the incentive is to tax the foreign firms in your jurisdiction more highly. In effect, that becomes, if you think about it, if I start taxing, the foreign firms in my jurisdiction more intensively, more highly than I did before, it becomes a barrier to inward foreign direct investment. It becomes what we call uh, an investment-related tax measure that could potentially be illegal under the WTO if the WTO were to pick it up uh, under, for example, the General Agreement on Trade and Services. Just a quick summary for our listeners so far, because we know Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 can get very, very complicated. Pillar 1 has seen its fair share of speculation and review since the blueprint came on the scene in October 2020. Now, nearly a year later, the United States is taking its own stab at it, proposing to narrow the scope of M&Es from 2300 to 100, as Dr. Eden explores in her article, the roadblocks to this initiative include determining which industries make the cut, the constant change of multinationals on the top list, and the selection criteria for the top 100. Uh, Dr. Eden, you have written extensively and been on several Fiona Show transfer pricing episodes, might I add, discussing the OECD's initiatives, in particular uh, Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. What did you find particularly interesting during your research for this article? Uh, did anything surprise you or, or stop you in your tracks? Let me give you one example, Matt, of what surprised me. When I first started out doing this, this research, I was really interested in trying to think about why the arm's length standard, that system that we'd had for nearly 100 years, which is a very principle-based system, which I think it was very flexible, and that has morphed and changed over time how that could adapt to the digital economy. I really truly believe it can adapt and can handle the digital economy. And I guess I was surprised to see so many tax authorities willing to say, you know, situation's changed, time to throw out the old, bring in the new, let's jump to a system that we've had very little experience with before, which is global formulary apportionment. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. There's really very few countries in the world that have had any experience with formulary apportionment. 
In the United States at the state level, we have a state level compact and about 40 states are in a compact where they share corporate income tax base uh, based on a formula. Um, and it raises very little revenue and it's a very small part of the revenues that the states themselves get. They get far more income from you know, other sources than they do from the corporate income tax. Canada has also had uh, one that's been based on this, and it's, it's run very much down from the federal top-down level, and not all provinces are in. I think Quebec is out. The only other real place we've used a formula is in 24-hour global trading, which has been some advanced pricing agreements negotiated within the banks where they're actually running a trading book around the world and is so interdependent you can't get at it. Now, let me say the European Union has had a proposal for a consolidated corporate income tax base on the table for, oh gee, maybe 10 years now, and they can't get their act together and get it done. And so there's been a proposal within the EU to do this. So I think the one thing that really kind of surprised me is how so many tax jurisdictions and the OECD secretariat in particular decided that because of the digital economy, it wasn't possible to take the arm's length standard or arm's length principle, if you want to use the European term, why it wasn't possible to take this very flexible standard and adapt it to the digital economy. And instead, the decision was to throw it out, bring in pillar one amount A, which is global formulary apportionment, and then use that global formulary apportionment method to allocate income. It's a huge radical change with almost no real wide experiments and no experiments that I'm aware of that are, are done at the international level. My take on this is really, frankly, since this is a European proposal, if the Europeans are really so strongly interested in global formulary apportionment, why don't they go ahead and bring in their corporate consolidated tax base and do it within the EU and leave the rest of us alone? <laughs> and then we can get five years of experiment with the EU doing it, see how it works, find out what the problems are, and then maybe think about introducing it here. So I'm really surprised that tax authorities, and particularly the OECD Secretariat, have have, have made the decision to take a really basically untried proposal, move it to the, um, uni you know, to the unified framework, to the global economy, and try it at that level rather than trying it at a regional level first. And since the real push for this is coming out of the EU, I think the EU really should step up to the plate and do it themselves with a corporate consolidated tax base and let the rest of us watch how they manage it. I think it'll be a disaster, but, you know, it would be theirs. Well, that's the great thing about democracy. Everything's an experiment <laughs> and, and you get to say, I told you so after the fact. I just don't want them experimenting with us. <laughs> Yes, 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 of course. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. In actually reading your executive summary, I couldn't help but be reminded of the title of your last article uh, that we had you on the show to discuss, and that was Winners and Losers, Winners and Losers specifically from Pillar 1, Amount A. Given the new dynamic, narrowing it down to 100, does that impact who wins and who loses or the conclusions you're drawing here? Absolutely. Of course it does, Matt. Two things I think matter. In the original proposals that I was working with, I was working on the assumption that the scope included automated digital services and consumer-facing businesses, right? 
and so it was a large number of multinationals, but in more constrained sectors. The new proposal is really opening this to all sectors, but a very small number of the largest and richest multinationals. The problem, as I said, is it isn't really all sectors because finance and insurance and natural resource industries are going out. But in effect, if you look past those two sectors, the next largest sector is not automated digital services, it's manufacturing. Right. So in effect, what comes in scope here is all manufacturing industries, not just business to consumer, but also B2B. In other words, assuming the formula is still based on destination-based sales and profits earned at that destination, right? It's the gap between destination-based sales and destined-based profits, your share as a share of the, of the world of those. What it means is you've got to look at sales of not just business to consumer, but all kinds of sales, business to business sales. And what it does is it means all of a sudden large manufacturing multinationals that were further back up the value chain that didn't sell directly to consumers are now going to be in scope here. That I think changes the dynamics significantly. It also means that then the location of these firms changed. So I, I think the big changes are assuming that what, what I hear is correct, that they are going to leave out finance and insurance, they are going to leave out natural resource industries. The two sectors that will be most affected will be manufacturing and automated digital services. And they will be a smaller group of multinationals, but the, they will then be on the list here for paying more tax. And so that, I think, is a, a major change. Now, my results in the earlier paper, one of the things I had done in the earlier papers, I simply did all industries. And I, I, you know, I knew it was going to be ADS plus CFB, but I did all industries just to show all industries. Well, what happened, of course, when we moved to the top 100, then it did expand it to all industries. So what I discovered is my earlier results uh, still were viable and useful results. And I was able to show what happens if you leave finance and insurance and natural resources in, and what happens if you actually take them, take them out here. There is a second big thing that I think is a major change, really in the last two papers I've written on this and in the earlier one. And it was a puzzle that bothered me for a long time. In other words, and if you look at all my original papers that were done as I sort of parsed through trying to understand how amount A would actually work in practice, the big problem is in, in some sense the step on who provides tax relief. I, I talked about the game, you know, who me, not me. Yes, you, you know, you have to yep. pay. There's a chapter seven in the Pillar One Blueprint that explains the tax relieving process. And it's a four-step process. And I didn't understand it. I talked to multiple people. All right. I talked to multinationals. I talked to tax authorities. I talked to experts. Nobody understood chapter seven. It was fuzzy, murky. And what I said, what happened in the last two papers is it really struck me the importance of a territorial tax system. If almost everybody in the world is on a territorial tax system, they've given up the right to tax offshore income already. In other words, they already gave. So I was reminded of this other little, you know, I'd li I like children's nursery rhymes and things like that as a way to explain <laughs> it. But let me give you another one. Do you remember the, the, the little game that you play with the napkin or the handkerchief where you have the villain and you have the victim? And you have the hero. Do you remember that one, Matt? You know, you hold the <laughs> napkin and you hold the napkin as a mustache, right? And you say, you say, you must pay the rent, right? The villain says, you must pay the rent. And you make it into a bow tie and, and the, the victim says, I can't pay the rent. Okay. Oh, okay. And then the villain yeah, says, yeah, you I must pay this. the rent. And the victim says, I can't pay the rent. Uh -huh. And then the third one, you make it into a bow tie, right? And the hero says, I'll pay the rent. Yeah. <laughs> so, let's take that little children's analogy and play it out here. All right. Yeah. You must pay. You must pay the rent is the market jurisdictions or the OECD secretariat on behalf or the European Union. You must pay the rent. Right. You must pay me pillar one amount a interesting for a variety of reasons. I believe I'm owed the rent. You owe me the rent. So you need the rent here is tax base. You must pay the rent. You must give me tax base. <laughs> okay. The victim says, I can't pay the rent. 
Sure. In other words, why can't right. I pay the rent? Well, one reason why I can't pay the rent is I already paid the rent. Yes. If I've gone to an exemption-based tax system and I exempt foreign source income, I've already paid tax base. I've yes. forgiven you. I said, you go tax it. I'm not going to tax this foreign source income. You tax it. So residence jurisdictions, I think, are going to say, I already paid the rent. All right. Then you still say the market jurisdictions, you must pay, you must the pay rent, your taxes. Right? Yep. So who's the hero here? Well, the hero, I think, is going to have to be one of two possibilities. Uh, other source jurisdictions, and they will not want to be heroes. Their argument was, you could have taxed them, right? And you didn't. And we can talk about why you didn't. And therefore, why should other source jurisdictions be asked to pay tax base here? The other possibility is the OECD comes in and says, we need a new multilateral agreement. And in that multilateral agreement, even if you are a residence jurisdiction on a territorial system, you must pay the rent anyway. You must give up tax base. And if you read between the lines and some of what's been said in the blueprint, it sure looks like there's going to be a new multilateral agreement, which will force residence jurisdictions to not only having given up the right to tax foreign source income, will have to pay additional on top. Now, I don't think they're going to be very happy about that in practice. So in theory, that's how the global formulary apportionment system under amount A would work. In practice, I think there would be all kinds of what I've called pillar one tax gains. But the long and the short of it is, I think two groups will really get hit. One, tax havens are going to end up paying more. I don't think there's any way around it uh, in the long and the Time's short. Up, yeah. Time is up. It's been a, it's been a nice free ride yep. for a very long time, and, and time is up. Number two, I think multinationals themselves are going to pay more tax. And, and number three, in the long run, what gets hurt here, I think, frankly, is the arm's length standard and the international tax principles on which that system has been based. I firmly believe that there are problems. There were other ways to fix this. Fixing the loopholes in the system, whether you put on a global minimum tax or you simply, you know, stop allowing tax stateless income to go untaxed anywhere. In other words, BEPS-1. The BEPS-1 proposals, I think, were really necessary and very useful. So doing that, I think, was, um, was a, a necessary one. I mean, I, I could even see an argument for a pillar one amount B where you think about at least a minimum for routine uh, distribution uh, and sales services in host countries. The other big piece of this is, remember, there's, there's sort of three things here. The amount A is really three parts. One is scope, and we spent a long time today talking about scope. The second is nexus. Nexus is the right to tax, right? And market jurisdictions are basically saying we don't have the right to tax. Well, in automated digital streaming services, they really haven't because the definition of permanent establishment is a 20th century definition based on brick and mortar multinationals. You don't have a permanent establishment. You don't have nexus to tax unless you actually have some physical there there. And of course, with born global, well, excuse me, born digital multinationals, they can make income in countries and they don't necessarily have to have a permanent establishment. So I do think there are problems with the PE definition. And one of the early proposals was to actually fix the PE definition. Now, let's just talk about what Amount A did with Nexus. Amount A said, basically, if you've got a million dollars of sales, in your jurisdiction, you have nexus. I mean, what? Uh, if, the, if the old definition is too narrow, it's brick and mortar and you've got something physical there for PE, the new definition in pillar one amount A, give me a billion, excuse me, a million dollar sales, then you've got sufficient nexus and you get part of this tax base. It's like almost every jurisdiction in the world, name them all, anyone gets the right to get some tax base here. And of course, there's going to be huge incentives for jurisdictions to do that. So we have three pieces. Scope, which keeps getting narrower and broader. And that's both numbers of multinationals and the sectors that they're in. Second is nexus, which is who are the market jurisdictions that are going to get this right to tax, which has now become extraordinarily broad, 
under pillar one amount A. And the third is the formula, how the money moves from point A to point B, which is a formulary apportionment system that relies on a mechanism providing tax base relief that is fuzzy at best and extraordinarily problematic and leaving itself open to lots of tax gains. So if this process was designed to create tax certainty and simplicity, I think it's actually going to do the exact opposite on all three levels, on scope, on nexus, and on the formula. Indeed. And just in light of the changing dynamics between winners and losers with this proposal, do you think the proposal itself for this top 100 incentivizes companies to stay out of that top 100? Oh, of course. If you can stay out, it really kind of has two benefits for you. One, you don't have to play the game. And so you can simply go on paying your tax under the arm's length standard and under the existing rules. That's the first thing. So any firm would like to do that. Uh, the second thing is, remember when I talked about, about the possibility for non-tariff barriers here. Suppose we have two firms and one is caught in the pillar one net and does have to pay this extra tax and the other one's out. In effect, you've created a difference in the tax treatment of those two firms that are inside a country. You've privileged one, the, the multinational that's out, over the multinational that's in. And that creates all kinds of incentives, A, to be out, and also to take advantage of this. So I think taxes are, this, this pillar one amount A could easily regenerate and turn into a non-tariff barrier that is actually discriminatory, A, against foreign firms and in favor of domestic, and then between foreign firms, depending upon if some are in and some are out. Let's get to at least the the heart of uh, the interests of listeners on this show. What issues or concerns would this pose to transfer pricing? Well, I think it still leaves incentives there to manipulate transfer prices. And let me just talk to you about, about why. Now, remember, all stages of the value chain, except possibly the natural resource stage, finance and insurance stages, are going to be in scope. So that still leaves transfer pricing along that chain as a possibility for moving tax base between jurisdictions. On top of that, you're still going to have to file in individual jurisdictions and going to have to follow the existing transfer pricing rules. So in effect, you've got one system layered on top of another. And I mean, I've listened to both U.S. tax officials and OECD officials talk about how this is going to work and that it is possible to layer one system on another. I think more of it is tectonic plates grinding against one another, both causing additional tax problems and providing their own loopholes. Tax professionals are, are a very bright bunch and I think they're mostly type A personalities. <laughs> so you put a room full of, of uh, tax uh, professionals together that are very bright, mathematically trained, whizzes, and uh, type A personalities, and, and, and there are loopholes to be found, they will find them. <laughs> so I, I, I think the potential for disputes, and remember, as when I started in this field, there were almost no regulations and almost nobody in it. Now there are multiple countries taxing, and they will have both the old rules, and they will be some group of them, maybe most of them, would be involved in this pillar one amount A and pillar two. Don't forget about the global minimum tax, which is going to hit everybody also. So there's there's a, an additional complication or complications coming here that I think if, if you wanted to ask myself, is this a good time to get into a transfer pricing career? It's just getting progressively messier and more difficult and more complicated. <laughs> And that provides lots of room for professionals. <laughs> yeah, and lots of planning opportunities. Now, uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, uh, we have a very smart group of listeners. I'm sure they'll be tasked with part of finding those loopholes. But what else can be done to combat these potential problems? Well, my proposal originally from the get-go was to approach this in, in a different manner. If the real proposal or the real original problem here was taxing digital multinationals and digital transactions. And I thought the existing arm's length rules could be written given their flexibility and given they are based on sound economic and business principles that they could be adapted to take into account. 
I also thought it was possible to adapt the definition of nexus of permanent establishment for a 21st century definition that would also help provide market jurisdictions where there were ADS sales, get a tax bite and be able to generate some revenue on their own here. I also thought it was possible to deal with tax havens in a variety of ways. My proposal would frankly would be go back and tax worldwide income and get rid of get rid of deferral and get rid of check the box. We moved in a different direction with the 2017 Tax Act and we moved to a territorial system. We really kind of got rid of check the box. We put in things like beat and guilty. And I, I think with the U.S. having gone that way, we're down that road now. So yeah. what, what else could we be doing? Well, I think we probably do need a global minimum tax. I've already written on this, and some of the things that were in my proposal actually have come down and been followed in the new statement. In other words, I do think it needs to be country by country basis, not the way guilty was done, where you allowed everybody to pool on a worldwide basis. Right. There is talk about carve-outs, and I think carve-outs are a real problem because they just allow more problems. So what could we do now in the real world? I still think amount A is a bad idea, and I hope that it dies on the drawing board. I think pillar one amount B has some legs and could be put in place. I do think pillar two, both the GMIN tax and the other proposals on the subject to tax rule, for example, those are possibilities. So I think there are ways to fix what I see as the real problem here, which is the top level stage of the international tax rules are full of loopholes. And those loopholes have encouraged transfer price manipulation. If you plug the loopholes, then the incentives to manipulate transfer prices go away and the managerial reasons for transfer pricing become more important. If the problems are at the international tax regime level where there are full of loopholes and opportunities to game the system, transfer pricing is one of the ways you can game the system. Mm -hmm. If you fix the problems at the top level, the international tax regime level, and I think BEPS 1 was designed to do that, and really, most of Pillar 2 is designed to do that. And you could even argue that possibly Pillar 1 amount B may have something to do that. Yeah. But if you could fix them there, then what happens is taxes don't drive transfer pricing anymore. It's not the rates and the preferences and the holes that drive transfer pricing. It's the managerial reasons, the economics and business reasons for setting transfer pricing that come to the fore. And that's a good thing. That would be a good thing. So I'm for fixing it at the top stage and then letting the transfer pricing rules work, adjusting the PE definition, and for thinking uh, more generally about how we do tax digital, the digital economy here. Uh, maybe that means digital services and sales taxes, possibly. That's on my agenda to write about too. If we do do digital sales and services taxes, realize they're governed by the WTO. And that's okay. The WTO has handled tariffs very well and has handled most non-tariff barriers very well. And I think the WTO could beef up the GATS and really think about how to handle digital sales and services taxes. They could be more general like VAT taxes. I mean, the United States is the only country in the world that still doesn't have a VAT. Yeah. You no, know, it's time to get a VAT here or a national sales tax here as a way to raise the revenue. So I do believe there were other ways to go that would have been less invasive and less destructive and create less distortions than the proposal that's currently on the table. Now, it, it sounds like your answer to the next question, which is, have you been encouraged by the evolution of Pillar 1, might be a mixed bag. On the one hand, in some areas, they were taking your advice, both within Pillar 1 and without. Elsewhere, we seem to be moving more and more in directions that you've been telling us for a while now are kind of non-starters from where you sit. I think it, it is a mixed bag. I think we've moved a long, long way from the original problem, and the solution has nothing to do with the original problem. <laughs> and maybe that's okay. I don't know. But if the problem was taxing the digital economy, the pillar one amount A is no solution to that problem. 
I don't think. I think it's moved along. And the taxing the top 100 has moved even, seems to me, even further away. One of my real worries is it's really going to tax manufacturing multinationals. And it's going to tax them up at the B2B stage, as well as the final stage of it, the end consumer stage. So lots of very large, very productive firms are going to be in the radar screen for taxes here that, that weren't before. I think if you're going to do this, banking and, and insurance and natural resources, everybody should be in, right? Right. And then just a very limited number of the very largest firms should be in. Or maybe, you know, if I really had my druthers, yeah. we, we just simply don't do this at all. Now, I'm not talking about the politics of getting this through in the United States, right? Which looks to be extraordinarily difficult midterm elections in another year. I mean, no Congress likes to deal with big tax measures in a, in a potential election year. So am I pleased with the new directions? No. I think uh, that it doesn't solve the problem in many ways, moves us away from the original problem. What do you want multinationals to take away from your findings? How can the potential, say, top 100 companies prepare themselves for the legislation if it's passed? Well, it's interesting. I've, I've talked to a variety of multinationals on that. And where, where they all come down to is they've been told by all the tax authorities that their overall tax base will not change. If you look at the empirical estimates on Pillar 1 Amount A, the amount of revenue that it raises worldwide is peanuts. And the reason is because if the formula works like it's supposed to, the tax gains that go to the market jurisdictions in terms of base are just offset by the tax base losses that go to the so-called tax relieving jurisdictions. In other words, uh, if we move the money around in a game, it ends up at zero, right? The multinationals I've talked to have all told me that's what they've been told. Their overall global taxes will not go up. Right. My takeaway from multinationals is you've been sold a bill of goods. That is not going to happen. I think the tax relieving mechanism is fuzzy at best. Yeah. And potentially really problematic in terms of who actually gets to give up base? Because I don't think any of the tax authorities really want to give up tax base. To the extent they don't give up tax base, the question is where where's this money for the market jurisdictions going to come from? Right. Particularly, remember, a market jurisdiction is now any jurisdiction that has more than a million dollars in sales. So really, you know, all these countries now can claim a bit of the tax pie, a bit of the corporate income tax base. My takeaway is the taxes on the multinationals that are in scope for this are going to go up. Their overall global tax payments are going to increase, can't not increase. And I think my, my advice to multinationals is step up, speak up. This is a bad idea. And you can go forward. Remember when we started this conversation, I said, Janet Yellen came in with this under the uh, new Biden administration and needed to raise some tax revenue and really felt the way to do this was to fix guilty by getting other countries also to move on the global minimum tax. She wanted to move on pillar two. Pillar two was something the U.S. wanted. In order to give it up to get pillar two, they needed to give pillar one to the European Union. The European Union wanted pillar one. My take on this is that the multinationals really should step up and say, Pillar 1 is going to tax American multinationals much more heavily. We are the ones who are going to be in scope. If you look at my numbers in when I did it on the who are in the top 100, the U.S. share is really high in here. And if you take out finance and insurance and you take out natural resources, the U.S. share gets over 50%. That means manufacturing and ADS firms in the United States are going to get hit with more taxes under Pillar 1 Amount A. Anyway, you, you, you look at it, I don't see a way around this. More will be paid by the tax havens. Yes, the tax havens, I think, are going to lose base. But overall, the taxes on American multinationals in manufacturing and ADS, in retail trade, in wholesale trade, and in other industries are going to increase.
can't not do that because of the way this, I think, will play out in practice. My suggestion is we should really try to uncouple pillar one and pillar two. Move on the minimum tax. I think that maybe its day has come. It's not a first best solution, but it does help backstop the tax system and it will mean the tax havens simply their day, their day in many ways is over unless they have real competitive advantages on the ground, which I think Ireland has, by the way, uh, but lots of other countries do not, which raises issues on its own that we could talk about some other time. Uh, but I want multinationals to take away, they should recognize that the idea that you can have pillar one amount A and not pay a much larger global corporate income tax base is not going to happen. Their taxes are going to increase significantly in American multinationals, in particular, not just the big digital, born digital firms, but all manufacturing multinationals that are the biggest ones are going to be in scope here. And, and they should prepare themselves <laughs> by talking more about, let's see if we can unbundle this package, move on some things, and, and get rid of Pillar 1 Amount A. And if I can summarize a, a little bit more comprehensively our entire episode, while the U.S. proposal to tax the top 100 global multinationals is still in transit, its presence in the global tax conversation indicates how international tax reform is unfolding before us in an effort to keep up with the digitalized economy. But like any pioneering endeavor, it doesn't come without pitfalls, which could impact transfer pricing and trigger reactionary pushback from jurisdictions. The technical framework around Pillar 1, along with Pillar 2, is expected to finalize by October 2021 and be implemented in 2023. So now all we can do is wait. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp welcome back everyone now comes time for my favorite part of the show this is a segment we call what we want to know just a rapid fire round of more personal questions sometimes transfer pricing gets involved just because of the expertise uh, of our guest and of course we don't uh, come without m much more expertise in a guest than we do with Dr. Eden. So always question one, Dr. Eden, in this rapid fire. Are you ready? Yes. Question two, what has been the highlight of your summer 2021 so far? As I'm sitting here uh, in the room next to me are uh, my daughter, Karen, and our grandson, oh. Nate, who will be 14 in September. The highlight of my summer is being able to get together with friends and family again now that we've been vaccinated. Oh, I, I hear that. You have Dr. Lorraine Eden uh, as a byline on numerous pieces of work. Which publication are you most proud of and why? My transfer pricing book in 1998, it's getting a little long in the tooth now, but I still get emails from people <laughs> saying, you know, I got a job in transfer pricing and I was tasked to read your book and it's the best thing I've read on this. So that still <laughs> makes me good. When I retired from full-time teaching, Matt, just before COVID, <laughs> um, I told my, my last group of full-time students, I'm going to rewrite that book. I need to rewrite that book. And frankly, at Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 not intervene, that book would be out now. 
But yeah, so that is, uh, I need a new version of this before I finally hang up my shingle and say I'm done with transfer pricing. But yes, that's the by far the publication I'm most proud of. What is a transfer pricing must know for students going into the field today? I still believe the must know is the underlying economics and business of why the firm has to set prices for transactions that happen within the firm. Whether it's Texas A&M, you know, and it's two departments that something is being moved from one department or another and it's priced it, or it's in a hospital and you have to price it, or it's between California and New York and you have to price it, or we're really sending it between the United States and France or Germany and you have to price it. So understanding why in a world there are good business and economic reasons for setting transfer prices. I think that's a, a core fundamental here that uh, all, all transfer pricing professionals really, they need to understand why firms do what they do. I worry too many transfer pricing professionals treat the firm as a black box. They use these software programs and they say, I'm gonna do CPM or TNMM and they punch in some numbers and check some boxes and it spits out what should be the uh, <laughs> rate of return right. without understanding why firms do what they do. So for me, the must know going into the field, it always was and still is, I think, unless we get global formulary apportionment and then it won't matter, uh, is trying to understand why firms do what they do. Right. And if you're using technology appropriately, you're freeing up the manpower to do that specialist work. So absolutely core belief here here at Cross Border Solutions. I'll say that much. What's something that always makes you laugh finally? I was thinking thinking about you know actually when when now that we're we're back and been vaccinated and going out, I, I was actually out with my husband. Um in, in Coronado on Sunday nights, there's a picnic in the park where they have a local bands and everybody goes out and dances on the grass. And we were out, do, we were out doing Love that it. about a week ago. And I just laughed with my husband. We both did for the sheer joy of being out with a group of people on the grass, listening to a band in beautiful Coronado uh, and, and enjoying life together. And, and my wish is for that, Everybody, I know the percent in vaccinated in the U.S. is higher than in many other countries, but I wish that we can roll out yeah. the vaccine as fast as we can all over the world so that we can enjoy and laugh together again with friends and with family. If nothing else, I think the pandemic reinforces everything that is truly important, so... We want to thank Dr. Eden for joining us on this very informative discussion. If you like today's podcast, you're going to love the other shows in Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit and the Fiona Show Tax Provision. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing. And we'll keep you up to date on the latest in transfer pricing. And we'll keep you up to date on the latest in transfer pricing. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next week.